I know you guys are probably uh, thinking, what on earth are we doing back in Revelation? We finished that study the week before camp. And for those of you incoming freshmen, uh, sorry, uh, but I'm going to do my best to try to shotgun a review of everything we covered for the last 16 weeks of Revelation. Don't worry, it's mostly all on your uh, outline there, and we're not going to actually look into those verses. Those verses are just there for a reference for you. But I did want to say this. The reason this message, I kind of titled it up there, Revelation Addendum, it means it's an add-on. This is not really a part of our Revelation study because we did finish it. But it was funny, as I was kind of thinking, you know, this is like the one Sunday that we have before uh, Mexico, and really before we start our new series that we're going to begin in August. Um, this is really the one Sunday, the one full-on message that I'll have to teach, and it was just something that God was laying on my heart. I thought we were done with Revelation, but Revelation wasn't done with me, I guess. And really, I, this isn't so much a Revelation study. It's not really anything to, even though I titled it Addendum, it doesn't really add anything from the doctrinal perspective of it. I really want to take this message and what we're going to talk about today, and I want this to be more of a post-camp message. I want this to be more of a follow-up as far as your commitments, what God worked in you and through you on at camp, and I really want to take a look at some of these two things, which coincidentally enough, they're the two things that we really didn't talk a lot about during our Revelation study, and I really want to look at it from a devotional perspective because I think God has a lot to say through these two points that are on here. And they are two of like the weirdest things in Scripture that we just didn't have the time for when we covered it in Revelation. And so that's why the actual title of this is called Two Parentheses in Time, Chapter 7 and Chapter 10. So a quick review, if you will. But before we do that, let's go ahead and pray. Father, I do want to thank you for everything you have done at camp, everything you're doing post-camp. And God, uh, I really just humbly ask uh, that you would use today, um, just kind of shock us back to that time, if you will. Shock us back into it and bring back things to remembrance of what you convicted us about. Uh, bring to light those things that um, we committed down to you on paper and the things that you challenged us with when we came back from camp and jog our memory because I don't have a doubt in my mind that uh, there's at least uh, a few maybe in here, maybe, that it's already been a challenge just to keep those commitments that we've done not even a week and a half ago. God, I know when I looked at these passages that I needed to be reminded of them. And so I ask and pray that you would go to work. You worked on me with these passages, and I pray that you would do the same for them as well that you'd get us in the mindset of um, what it really means to fulfill a commitment, to have a commitment. It's not just a fleeting thing that we do for a couple weeks after camp. No, this is something that needs continual work and to always put these things in remembrance, just like Peter said. I pray you do that this morning. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So a quick review. Where, do we, where are we at this point in chapter 7 and chapter 10? So on your outline here, overall, generally speaking, chapters 4 to 19 detail the tribulation period that occurs immediately after the rapture of the church. We've seen that. For those of you guys who are freshmen who have absolutely no idea what we're talking about, we have a podcast you guys can go back and listen to, but it's 16 weeks, so I understand if you're not going to be able to have the time to do that. But I'm sure, having grown up in this church, you guys know about the tribulation period. You know about the rapture. Those chapters detail what's going on during the tribulation period. Next point. 
We also see that the tribulation period, what it actually is, it's the time of God's judgment, and it will last a total of seven lunar years. That's different than solar years. A lunar year is 360 days. We went through all of that to explain what God is doing during these seven years. How He's not only just pouring out His judgment upon the earth, and upon sin, and upon lost mankind, but He's also reconnecting with the nation of Israel and he's utilizing them to accomplish his will. And during that time, we also see that this is that when the Antichrist establishes his rule and reign, where he sets up a seven-year covenant with Israel and the world. We talked about how for those first three and a half years in, in the tribulation period, it's kind of full of relative peace. And I put peace in quote marks because what we define as peace versus what it's actually going to be during that time, it's all hell breaking loose in a immoral kind of a stance. Oh, it'll be peaceful. There will be many wars or, or things like that. There will be rumors of wars, but not many wars during those first three and a half years. But it's going to be one great, big, lascivious, concupiscent party going on for those first three and a half years because all of the light and the salt of Christians will be gone. It'll be nothing but lost people and the Antichrist ruling and reigning. But in the middle of that tribulation period, next point, we see that he breaks the covenant by sitting down in the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem and declaring himself to be God. This is known in the Bible as the abomination of desolation. It is what the Antichrist, what Satan himself has wanted ever since eternity past. Isaiah 14 talks about how he wanted to be like the Most High. He wanted to exalt his throne above God's. And for this small little space on earth, he thinks he's finally done it. When he sits in the newly rebuilt temple in Jerusalem and declares himself to be God and works all kinds of signs and wonders and miracles to prove as such, so to speak. And it's at that time, the final three and a half years, where God pours out his judgment in the form of seals, trumpets, and vials. And it's during this time, or during these chapters, so to speak, that John gives us four accounts of the tribulation period. I don't know if you ever noticed that before, if you've ever read through Revelation, or if you've ever read books about Revelation, because there's a lot of debate back and forth about it. But do you realize that everything that happens in the book of Revelation, it's not one big sprawling story. It's actually four separate accounts of the same event. Now, for those of you guys who were here on the Wednesday night study for Revelation, why would God give four separate accounts of the second coming of Christ? And what's the simple answer? Jack? He gave four accounts of his birth. He gave four accounts, four different accounts of his first coming. Those four different accounts are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's where it can get very, very confusing when you're reading through Revelation. You think that it's all about one big sprawling epic story and very linear, when actually God's like, nope, the seals, this is the full seven years in the telling of the seals. The trumpets, it's the full seven years of the tribulation period, 
through the trumpets. And he gives little details in each of those, just like he does in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You get details in Matthew about the first coming of Christ that you don't get in the book of Mark, and so on and so forth. And so, with that, you come to the final bullet point here. Revelation chapter 7 and chapter 10, and we talked about this, they are parenthesis chapters, or parentheses, detailing more events that occur during the seals, Revelation 5 and through Revelation 8, and during the trumpets. So these two different accounts of the tribulation period. That's what these chapters are. It's almost as though God says, all right, wait, I'm going to put a pause here. Because that's why you put a parenthesis when you're writing a paper, right? You put a parenthesis because you're like, okay, I want to, not that anything else I said before the parenthesis or after the parenthesis is any less important, but I really want to highlight this one thing. Isn't that why you guys do that in your papers? To really highlight something. And it doesn't make the storyline go further. No, it just gives further details. And that's what these two chapters are about. That's the background. And that's about as far as we're going to get doctrinally today. The rest is going to be all devotional. Again, I want this to be more of a post-camp follow-up message and not a doctrinal study like we did on Wednesday nights of Revelation. So you guys are in Revelation chapter 7. We come to point 1 on your outline. The 144,000. What the heck is that all about? Look with me in verse 4. John is saying, And I heard the number of them which were sealed, and there were sealed an hundred and forty and four thousand of all the tribes of the children of who? And he goes on in verses 5 to 8 to list twelve tribes of Israel, and from each of those twelve tribes there are twelve thousand people that were sealed from all twelve tribes. Twelve thousand times twelve is, anybody good at math? Answers on your study sheet. 144,000. Very good. So who are they? Letter A. The 144,000 are comprised of the tribes of the children of Israel. Again, right now, in the time that you and I are living in, God is working through the church. All who call upon the name of the Lord to save them, they are entered into the body of Christ known as the church. God temporarily is not using Israel because Israel does not see their need for Christ right now. There's a temporary divorce right now with them. But after the rapture of the church, God's going to go back and he's going to reestablish his relationship with them and use them again, part and parcel through the 144,000. Letter B, we find that they have a very specific mission. Their mission is to be witnesses that preach the gospel of the kingdom unto the entire planet. And that is prophesied in Matthew 24, verse 14, where Christ himself is saying, and this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a, what? Witness unto all nations. And look how he ends this verse. And then shall the end come. We talked on Wednesdays how Matthew 24, it's all prophetic. It, it's all about the tribulation period. This gospel of the kingdom, it's not the same gospel that we preach, for by grace are ye saved through faith and that not of yourselves. 
It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. No, it's the gospel of the kingdom that Christ preached on, on the Sermon on the Mount. That is the mission of the 144,000 witnesses of Israel. But as I saw that, and as I thought about that, I'm like, huh, that sounds familiar. Even though it's not the gospel of the kingdom, that mission is our mission. Is it not? To preach the gospel to every creature as Mark 16 talks about? Oh, yeah, and the very last words of Christ before he ascended on high after his resurrection, Acts 1.8, But ye, disciples, shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. Hey, is the Holy Ghost living inside of you? See, two people for sure. Okay. Is the Holy Ghost living inside of you because you called upon Christ, you saw your need for a Savior, and you're now saved? Okay, so this verse is talking to you. Ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. The 144,000 children of Israel were to go to the ends of the earth preaching the gospel. We are to go to the ends of the earth preaching the gospel. Our missions are the same. And so even though time-wise, this is going to happen sometime in the future, I just can't help but think that God has something about these 144,000 that He specifically wants us to know, for us to hear. Maybe there's something we can glean devotionally about them, especially as it relates to where we are after camp and everything God's been doing in us. And we see in letter C... Oh, I love it. These guys become successful in fulfilling their commission. Look at verse 9. You guys are in Revelation 7. Look at verse 9. After this I beheld, and lo, behold, in other words, a great multitude, which no man could number. So it's definitely more than 144,000. Of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb clothed with white robes and palms in their hand. We see that this great multitude that no man could number, they are here because the 144,000 children of Israel did their job. Whereas when you cross-reference and compare Scripture with Scripture, you find that one of the reasons why the church is raptured out of here is because the church is not doing its job. Again, we covered this when we looked at church history about the time and age which we live in right now. The church is not doing its job. They fulfill their commission that's been given to them. Turn over to chapter 14. This is another passage talking about the 144,000, but we have to look and see why is it? Why is it they are so successful in fulfilling their commission? What is it maybe that we might be missing that causes us and prohibits us from filling these chairs? From filling multiple churches and sending out multiple churches. Well, look with me in verse 1. And looked, and I looked, and lo, Revelation 14, a lamb stood on the Mount Sion, and with him, how much? 144,000, having his father's name written in their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, 
as the voice of many waters and as the voice of a great thunder. And I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. And they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne and before the four beasts and the elders. And no man could learn the song but the who? Everybody know? There we go. Okay. Maybe we don't. Caleb, next week, Red Bull's for everybody. Red Bull for everybody. That's okay. I'll pay. No, I'm not going to pay for it. All right. Verse, verse 4. So you guys see Revelation 14. It's talking about the same 144,000 of Revelation 7. Now we're going to read why they were so successful. Verse 4. This is what God is saying about these guys. These are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. One of the things we see is not only are these 144,000, they're Jews from the nation of Israel. We see on your outline that the reason they were successful is because of their purity. Because of their purity, they were so successful in fulfilling this mission. They were single-focused. They were single-minded. They weren't double-minded because James 1.8... Does anybody know what James 1.8 says about a double-minded man? Unstable in all his ways. Shaky. Not firm. Not solid. They were pure. That's why they were able to successfully accomplish their mission. We're going to come back to Revelation 14, but I'm going to have it on the screen. Flip on over to 1 Peter chapter 3, or I'm sorry, chapter 1. Cross out chapter 3 on your outline and put chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, it's just a few books to your left, so don't turn too, too far. Amen. Great. Hallelujah. The 144,000 in the future, man, they're going to be not only Jews of God's children of Israel, but they're going to be virgins. They're not going to be defiled with women. They're going to keep themselves pure. Hey, amen for them. Problem that I can't seem to escape is that, well, the same call is for us too. The same commission as we just saw, is for us to reach the entire world with the gospel. But the same character qualities to achieve our mission are also the same. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14. Can I get a reader for verses 14 and 16, actually? Jack. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy... So be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. Be ye holy, for I am holy. You realize how he said that immediately after, Don't be fashioned unto your former lusts, because I have called you to be holy. You know how Matthew 5.48 puts it? Be ye perfect, as I am perfect. Holiness, not defiled. Keep your purity in all manner of conversation, in all manner of lifestyle. That is still the same standard that applies to you and me right now. Yes, in the future, it will be the mark of the 144,000. But it still applies to us in the church age right now. And then you have Colossians 3. I love this passage. I talk about this passage all the time. 
It says, For if ye be risen with Christ, are you risen with Christ? The moment of your salvation, you were, your old man was crucified with him, and you were risen to walk in newness of life. That's what happens at the moment of salvation. So if you are in here and you're saved, you're risen with Christ. So Colossians 3 is directly to you. He said, if ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, not things on the earth. Set your affections on things above, not on the earth, because ye are dead. Your old manner of lifestyle, your old way of thinking, those former lusts that we just saw in 1 Peter 3, that's dead, that's gone. You are no more. Your life is hid in Christ, Colossians 3.3 says. Those are the first three verses, but then he follows it up with verse 5. And I had to put this on here because I love the way it's broken down. So in light of that, remember he's talking to Christians here, and he says, mortify therefore. Because you're risen with Christ, because you're dead and your life is not your own, mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. Fornication. Anything sexual outside of marriage. Uncleanness. Defiling yourself. Inordinate affection. Having desires that are not pure. Having desires that aren't godly. Evil concupiscence. That's strong evil desires for things that are unholy. And covetousness, wanting something, wanting more than what God has provided for you. That's covetousness. Wanting more than what God has already given you. Not being satisfied and content. That's covetousness, which is the 10th commandment as well. Yeah, it still applies to the New Testament too. But note how he ends it. And covetousness... Which is what? Help me out. Does it say which is like idolatry? No. Which is idolatry? And you know the thing that hit me as I was looking at this verse, the way that it's worded out and everything like that? You know, we might often be in here and thinking, okay, cool. Like, I, I've not defiled myself with women. I've not committed fornication. But do you guys see how this is kind of worked out? That... This here's the fruit of the sin. You work it backwards and you find the root right here. If you find yourself having a desire and wanting more than what God has already given you, you're on a very dangerous slope. If you find yourself not being content with being single, with not being content with the friendships you have and wanting more than what is there, be careful. Because when you want something more than what God has already provided for you, then you're going to really start to really want it with a strong desire. And then it's going to lead to not having right, pure affection. And then you're going to lead, to, or lead into being unclean and the fruit thereof will fashion itself accordingly. It starts here. I'm going to break this thing. It starts here. Not being content with where God has you. Not being content with where you're at and wanting more. Oh, be careful. You're playing with your purity. And another passage I quote all the time. 
Many of you guys know it. What did Paul say to the Corinthians? What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of or from God? (laughs) And ye are not your own. Understand if you're in here and you're saved, you're not your own. You have been purchased by the blood of Christ. Now, man, does he not give you a life and a life more abundant, John 10 says? Yes, absolutely. But a lot of times we try to start taking back and we try to kind of take our, what was our old life and kind of merge it into this new life with Christ and say, oh, see, God, I, I can do this and, and you're going to bless me because, you know, you love me. And you died for me, and you saved me, so I'm just going to go ahead and live life my way and bring you along with me. For ye are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your, where? Body, and in your spirit, which are God's. So again, you might be thinking, oh hey, I've not, I've not committed fornication, not defiled myself with women, or with men, but again, that's the fruit of it. Are you anywhere down the line with maybe the root of covetousness? Of maybe wanting something that right now God's like, no, no, no. It's not the time. Be content with what I just did in you and through you at camp. Be content with those commitments. Let's work on those things first. And we'll meet later down the road to discuss that thing. If you guys memorize these verses, out of curiosity, does anybody have these verses memorized or one of them? One that should definitely go with it is chapter 3, verse 17. If any man defile the temple of God, and remind me from the last passage, who's the temple of God? We are. Him shall God, what? For the temple of God is what? Be ye holy, for I am holy. Which temple ye are. You know what the context of 1 Corinthians 3 is? Your presentation day. The judgment seat of Christ. When you stand before God to give an account of your service to Him. You defile your temple. You defile what God is doing because of not being content with where you're at, you're playing with fire. These guys, they had purity. They kept themselves pure. They kept themselves from idolatry. They didn't covet anything because they were just so content to have Jesus and Him only. And we don't want to be like these guys in Second Peter chapter 2. We just came off a study in 2 Peter chapter 1. These are guys who don't add these things to their faith. They have eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from sin. You have a sin that you just can't stop from? Trace back to the root. Is it found in covetousness? Beguiling unstable souls. There's another verse to memorize for instability. And heart they have exercised with what? Covetous practices. Look what Peter calls them. Cursed children. Boys not mincing words. And we shouldn't either. 
playing with fire. Be careful. These guys were not just successful because of their purity, but they were successful in fulfilling their commission. Next point, because of their complete obedience. Sound familiar? Here's what the rest of Revelation 14.4 says. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever He goeth. There's so much packed into just that statement right there. They follow the Lamb whithersoever He goeth. No questions asked. You want me to go talk to that person? Perfect, I'll do it. You want me to go talk to that group of kids? Alright, awesome, let's go. I love it. Last night, Wyatt... He was able to go up to like groups of like three kids. Always try, tries that. Canal days, he always tries to find like the most rough and rugged people. And I love the fact because he has like no fear right now. And he's even telling us like, this is about Jesus. You need to read it and make sure you read it. And won't, wouldn't walk away unless they actually took it. But I know that one day that he's going to start developing a fear and it's going to start affecting him. These guys were, <laughs> I say were in the past tense. These guys will be fearless. That's right. And you know, amen for them in the future. But again, flip over to Luke chapter 9. We're called to do the exact same thing now. Their complete obedience, their willingness to follow the Lamb whithersoever He goes. Luke chapter 9, look at verse 23. And he, Jesus, said to them all, that includes you today, if any man will come after me, a follower, let him deny himself and take up his cross. Uh, how often? Daily. And do what? Follow me. Jump down to verse 57. And it came to pass, someone probably heard that message in verse 23, and you're like, all right, I'm stirred in my spirit, I'm ready to go now. That happens all the time. This guy is about to make a camp commitment. This guy in verse 57, a certain man said unto him, Lord, I'll follow thee whithersoever thou goest, whithersoever he goeth. I'll follow thee whithersoever thou goest. And Jesus said unto him, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. You comfortable at home? You Maybe you're more comfortable being an introvert. I get it. Personalities are different. Honestly, as much as I love hanging out with you guys, I'm a lot happier at home. I am. I'm a little introverted. Son of man hath nowhere to lay his head. You know what it is about following the Lord, about fellowship, following the Lamb with us wherever he goeth? Your creature comforts that you have, it's going to have to go. Because the work of the Lord is going to be busy. You're going to be constantly on the move. If you want to write this down, you know what following implies? Following implies change. Because if the Lamb is on the move, and you're going to follow him, you can't stay still. You have to move. That implies change. Changing your attitude, changing your thoughts, changing what you normally do, your patterns of behavior, changing your daily routine up. Following implies change. 
Getting involved more. Getting involved more in the group me chat. Getting involved more here on Wednesdays and Sundays. Getting involved in discipleship. How many of you that put that down in your camp commitments? Have you followed up with it? Baptism. It also implies submission. Because remember, you are not your own. You've been bought with a price. 144000 will get that. The same call is for us as well. These guys are successful in fulfilling their commission not only because of their purity, but because of their complete obedience. And lastly, verse 5. And in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. They are successful because of their conversation, their speech, the things that come out of their mouth causes them to be successful in fulfilling their mission of preaching the gospel to the whole world. Because of their speech, there was no guile in their mouth. 1 Peter 3.10 says, For he that will love life and see good days, do you enjoy your life? you enjoy the newness of life you found in Christ? Let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Man, I keep mentioning this. One day we might just have to do a study in James 3. I keep running out of time to do it. But James 3, verses 1 to 12 specifically, a passage all of you guys should go home and read. Talking about just how powerful this little three-inch flab in between our teeth, how powerful that muscle can be. It has the power to be set on fire with hell. To destroy, to tear down, to tear apart each other. Your words can greatly hinder the success of somebody else in this room. These guys, no, they were without fault at the judgment seat of Christ. They were without fault at the throne of God. They had these three things. And these three things are three things that God expects of us here and now. Will we be without fault the throne of God on our presentation day? Next, flip on over to Revelation chapter 10. The second parenthetical chapter that's found in Revelation, giving more details Chapter 7 was talking about the seals of the judgment of God. This is talking about the trumpets. And something happens, again, it's a parenthesis period, in between the sixth and the seventh trumpet. We see this mention of a little book. Can I get a reader for verses 1 to 7? Chapter 10, verse 1 to 7, Kendall. And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was upon his head, and his face was as it were the sun, and his feet as pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book open, and he set his right foot upon the sea, and his left foot upon the earth. Hmm. He cried with a loud voice, as when a, as when a lion roareth, and when, he, and when he had cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. And when the seven thunders had uttered their voices, I was about to write, and I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered, and write them not. 
And the angel which I saw stand upon the sea, and upon the earth lifted up his hand to heaven, and swear by him that liveth forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that, that therein are, and the earth and the things that therein are, and the sea and the things which are therein, that there should know that there should be time no longer. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished, as he hath declared to his servants the prophet. Okay. There's a lot to unpack there. I'm going to do my best. You just have to trust me on this. If this was a Wednesday night class, we would take all the hour and five minutes just going through those seven verses. But the angel here, just like in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord, this is the Lord Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, whenever you saw the phrase, the angel of the Lord, it was always the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ showing up on the scene in the Old Testament. It's awesome. You guys should just trace that passage throughout Scripture. That's who this mighty angel is here. And he's standing one foot upon the sea and one foot upon the land. One foot, one foot in the Mediterranean and the other foot upon Israel. In other words, this is, on letter A, the Lord Jesus Christ. He shows up as King demonstrating his right to reign on the earth. In the Old Testament, specifically Genesis 13, we looked at this at camp. Anywhere that Abraham's foot went, anywhere his feet took him, that was his land, God said. That was his land. The Lord Jesus Christ has one foot in the sea, one foot on land, demonstrating all of the earth is his. This is him coming back as king to rule and to reign. And when he spoke, he spoke as a roaring lion. Just like that song we sing. Ugh, we don't have time to go into it, but did you hear how it said that when he spoke, he roared like a lion, and then there were seven thunders that thundered in response to him as a roaring lion? Oh, understand that when he comes back and he rules and reigns, there are going to be princes and powers of the air, principalities and powers in the unseen world, that they are going to thunder and they are not going to be happy when he comes back. You can follow that out later. So he comes back. But in point letter B, we see that Christ gives a roaring invitation to John. Here's what he says in verse 8. And the voice which I heard from heaven spake unto me again and said, Go. And take the little book, which is open in the hand of the angel, which standeth upon the sea and upon the earth. And I went unto the angel and said unto him, Give me the little book. I love it. The little book that Christ has in his hand, it's not only the title deed to the earth, which is his, but that title deed to the earth is found in this book. And he tells John, go and take it. You know what I love about this? You know what this kind of helps me with, especially when I think about where we are post-camp? Not just with the 144,000 and how we can be like them and we should be like them today. First bullet point on your outline God's revealing of truth, it must be sought after and taken. Do you see how Christ worded that? Go and take the little book. Take it. 
And then John even goes, give me the little book. <sighs> Understand. Just like John and the revelation that Jesus Christ was showing him, was giving him through his spoken word or to us today through his written word, it's not just going to come to you out of the blue. God speaking to us, it's not just going to happen by osmosis. You have to want it. You have to go and take it. Just like John did. You can't be spoon-fed anymore. There must come a point in your walk and your growth with Christ that it's not about coming here on Wednesdays and Sundays and that's where you're getting your sustenance from the Bible. Or a third day of the week when you go and meet with your discipler. You have to get to the point in your walk. If you want these commitments to last beyond just two weeks, if you want what God spoke to you about at camp to be a lifelong commitment, a pattern of commitments, you have to show some impetus and take it yourself. You need to take it. Jesus Christ wants willing messengers. And a willing messenger has to have a message in order for him to be a messenger. And you get that message, those marching orders, from your commanding officer. But you have to go and take it. You have to want it. You have to be willing. It's here for the taking. Every single morning of your life when you wake up to open the book and take it. Take what He has to say to you. Take what He's preaching to you on Sunday mornings, Wednesday nights, in discipleship. Take it beyond those three days. Take it. Do what Paul said to Timothy. Hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. But I love it because the angel of the Lord doesn't just stop there. Take it. Look what he says again in verse 9. So John goes and he says, Give me the little book. What a prayer that is. What a bold prayer that is. You should try it sometime. But understand, you pray a prayer like that to the Lord Jesus Christ, don't be surprised if He just answers it. And He answers it in a way like we're going to see here in verse 9. And He said unto me, yet again, Take it and eat it up, and it shall make thy belly bitter, but it shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it up. And it was in my mouth sweet as honey. And as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. God's roaring invitation to John. It's that the revealing of truth that must be sought after and taken. And as we just saw in the second bullet point, God's revealing of truth must be personally consumed and applied. Consumed and applied. Turn over to Jeremiah 15 for the last passage. In other words, you can be in your Bible every single morning. You can take it. 
But if that's all it is, you know where that book is going to stay? Just up here in your head. God can't use you if what He's speaking to you just stays up in your head. He cannot use you. It must be personally applied to your life. That's why, and listen to this, that's why we take so long on that last day of camp to really hone in on our commitments. To really think about, is this actually a realistic commitment of mine? Is this really something practical? And what are those specific obstacles that await me that are going to attack me when I come back and are going to try to stop me from fulfilling those commitments? That's why application is so important to think about and meditate on these things. I love it. Jeremiah 15. I don't know if you guys ever saw a passage like this before, but man, is this a powerful one. Verse 16. Jeremiah says, Thy words were found, and I did eat them. He took it in. He digested what God was speaking to him. He consumed it. He let it sink into the fibers of his very being and what God wanted for him. And thy word, look at it, check it out. Thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of mine heart. For I am called by thy name, O Lord God of hosts. There are going to be some days when you open up the Bible and it's going to be, man, this is awesome, God. Yes! I'm ready. Man, all those cool things we saw in the book of Revelation. How awesome it is I now have an understanding of what the book of Revelation is about. And I have this understanding now. And man, even all these awesome messages that Tony preached on a week and a half ago. My heart is full of joy. I'm rejoicing because I know who I am and I know what God wants me to do. And then you start letting it sink down even further because, man tasted really good and sweet in my mouth. And then you start thinking, oh, wait a second. All those cool things we've been looking at in the book of Revelation. Uh, some of my family members and friends are going to be here for some of the atrocious stuff that we saw. My classmates, whom I care for so much, they're going to go through that stuff. And then you have a similar reaction that Jeremiah did. And that John did. Verse 17. It's funny, I never looked at these passages after verse 16. We always kind of stop at verse 16, but look at verse 17. Jeremiah says, oh, I sat not in the assembly of the mockers, nor rejoiced, because now that book that was sweet in his mouth is becoming bitter to his belly. I sat alone because of thy hand. Understand, you start applying and consuming the word of God, it's going to be days of loneliness sometimes. That's okay. That puts you in good company with Him. Puts you in good company with godly people. You might lose friends as a result of it. That's okay. You, you might lose all of your friends because of the Word of God affecting you. And that's okay. sat alone because of thy hand, for thou hast filled me with indignation. Why is my pain perpetual and my wound incurable? Because this book's a sharp two-edged sword, and sometimes you open it up, and it calls out sin or things or motives or thoughts that you have, and it cuts you. Wilt thou be altogether unto me as a liar and as waters that fail? There are going to be days when you pick up this book, and you're like, oh, that passage tasted real good. 
And then as you let it start sinking down and you start applying it to your life, you start applying these camp commitments that you made just a week and a half ago, and you're like, huh, all right, now the rubber's actually hitting the road because I'm hanging out with my friends that I knew were going to be an obstacle for me when I came back. And I'm starting to think like I did with them before camp. And now I'm faced with a decision. Do I tell them that I don't do those things anymore? Or do I don't talk that way anymore? I don't think that way anymore? Do I actually say something about it? And what's their reaction going to be? Oh man, this isn't tasting so good anymore. It's bitter. But understand, Here's how that passage ends, verse 11. After John ate the book, it was sweet to his mouth, bitter to his stomach, and he, the angel of the Lord, Jesus Christ, said unto me, Thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Understand, when you go through that bitterness of God's Word infecting you, let her see, it's only after this can you be used to affect the whole world. Well, that's John in the future. Mm -mm. No. That was the disciples in the past. They turned the whole world upside down, affecting the whole world. John in the future, through his prophesying, will one day affect the whole world. But the harvest is now. That's what you are called to do. Like I said, I thought I was done with Revelation, but Revelation wasn't done with us. Two chapters that we barely looked at at all during our study. Very applicable to where we are right now. So how are you doing with your commitments? How are you doing with your purity? the friendships and the relationships that you have? How are you doing with your conversation, your speech? How are you doing with your following of Christ? And is the Word of God hitting you? Are you consuming it? Or since camp has this been on the nightstand? Things to consider. Might be good after VBS decoration for us to spend some time going back over our camp commitments this week, today and see how we're doing. Nothing will get you more sobered up and ready for VBS than that. Let's pray.